I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading the book of Colossians, all four chapters. Here's what you need to know about Colossians. I've taken the following excerpt from the Expositor's Bible Commentary. Colossae was a small town situated on the south bank of the Lucas River in the interior of the Roman province of Asia. That's an area included in modern-day Turkey. Located about 100 miles east of Ephesus, its nearest neighbors were Laodicea, which was 10 miles away, and Hierapolis, which was 13 miles away. Both of these cities, the important of which was Laodicea, are named in the epistle as having communities of believers Colossae and Laodicea were probably evangelized during the time of Paul's extended ministry in Ephesus. We see that in Acts chapter 19, verse 10. Colossians was written by Paul from prison around 62 AD. We also see mention of a man named Epaphras in Colossians chapter 1, verse 7 and chapter 4, verse 12. He apparently was with Paul in Rome when he wrote this book. He's also mentioned in the epistle to Philemon in Philemon verse 23 where there he's called by Paul his fellow prisoner. You'll notice in verse 1 that Timothy was there as well. Now let's begin reading with Colossians chapter 1, the first 14 verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is coming to you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthen with all might, according to his glorious power, unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Now we see Paul's standard greeting in verses 1 through 4. He declares his apostleship in verse 1, as he almost always does at the beginning of his letters, except, of course, in Philippians. When Paul speaks of being an apostle, he's claiming that twelfth spot vacated by Judas Iscariot. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he gives a complete defense of his apostleship. Paul consistently uses the word saints, as he did here in verse 2, to describe those who have trusted Christ as Savior. The Greek word used there is actually an adjective, it's hagios, and it means holy or set apart. But when used alone, 
it's rendered as a noun. In other words, those who have been set apart for heaven, having trusted Christ as their personal Savior, are called saints, as in being set apart or set apart ones. The subject matter Paul deals with in Colossians specifically attacks the tenets of the first century heresy known as Gnosticism. These Gnostic teachers were perverters of established Christian doctrine. They mixed a little truth with Oriental mysticism and Judaism. After his greeting in verses 1 through 4, verses 5 through 14 are stocked with doctrine and expectations. Here he deals with salvation, heaven, Holy Spirit guidance, godly Christian living, and deliverance from evil, just to name a few of the subjects. Pay particular attention to verse 5, where he says, For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. The Greek word for hope in every occurrence in the New Testament in the King James Version is elpis. Now, the Greek definition for uh, hope or elpis is a little different in expression from our English word hope. While we use the word hope to sometimes express a good bit of uncertainty about a future event, elpis, on the other hand, is a Greek expression meaning confident expectation with no uncertainty with regard to the future event. Now read verse 5 again, substituting confident expectation for the word hope. Some of the cults try to maintain that the Bible nowhere says that believers go to heaven when they die. Well, verse 5 here says they do. Incidentally, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 and 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 also plainly say that a believer goes to heaven at death. You'll notice in verses 4 through 8 that Paul seems pleased with the spiritual health of the church there at Colossae, a report he had received regarding them from Epaphras in verses 7 and 8. He comments in verses 5 and 6 regarding the presence and influence of the word of the truth of the gospel to the extent that it has, at this point, permeated the entire world. The question arises from Paul's declaration in verse 6. Does Paul mean the Roman Empire or the whole face of the globe? The Greek word for world there is, uh, is cosmos. That word is used in a number of contexts from simply referring to the world order of things to a reference to the globe itself. For example, Jesus said in John fifteen eighteen, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Was Jesus talking about the whole globe there when John uses the word cosmos to frame his comments? Well, no. John is conveying that Jesus is talking about the world order. So you see, one must be careful not to read more into the usage of a word than was intended by the writer. It seems likely that Paul is referring to the extent that the word of the truth of the gospel has reached every region of the Roman Empire, a comment that he reinforces down in verse 23. Now notice the emphasis on godly Christian living in Paul's prayer for them beginning in verse 9. That prayer goes down at least through verse 12, but Paul segues into some doctrinal issues regarding Christ in the process of detailing his prayer for these people. Now here are the components of the prayer Paul lifts up to God for these Colossians. That they might, number one, be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. In other words, he's praying for spiritual insight. That they would walk worthy of the Lord into all pleasing. In other words, that they would have a God-honoring lifestyle. He's also praying that they would be fruitful in every good work. In other words, to see an impact from their service for God. That they would also increase in the knowledge of God. To experience an increase in understanding the nature of God. 
and then to be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power to all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. The same Greek word, the root, is used for the verb strengthen, which is dunamao, and the noun might, which is dunamis. These two words are frequently used in the New Testament. And that's the general word for strength, power, might at the hand of men or God. Our English word dynamite, as a matter of fact, is derived from this Greek word. On the other hand, the power of this verse comes from the Greek word kratos. This word is only used 12 times in the New Testament and always refers only to God's power, never a reference to man's abilities. Patience and long-suffering are two different concepts in this verse. The Greek word for patience, hupomone, means to bear up under difficult circumstances, while the Greek word for long-suffering, makrothemia, that means to calmly suffer long without irritation in the midst of difficult circumstances. Now, both of these, by the way, are easy when we are strengthened by God. And then finally, he says, Give thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. The Greek word for hath made us meet is hilkanao, and it means has made us able. These saints are believers, and all believers are equal heirs with Jesus Christ. We see that in Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. So here's where Paul's prayer does the doctrinal segue, though. It's between verses 12 and 13. Speaking of God, verse 12, here's what he does, verse 13. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Now let's not sugarcoat the life of unregenerate people. They need to be delivered from the power of darkness, and moved into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And what makes that move possible? Well, there's your answer in verse 14. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Redemption from the power of darkness is made possible through the blood. That means the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And that results in the forgiveness of our sins. In other words... Redemption, or the forgiveness of sins, is made possible only because Jesus cleansed us through his sacrificial blood. Who exactly is Christ? That question is answered in verses 15 to 24. Verse 15, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill of that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ, 
in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Now, Paul uses these verses to firmly establish the deity and preeminence of Jesus Christ. These nine verses solidly identify Christ as God among us and without question, the head of each believer and the head of the church. Notice how plainly Paul expresses the exact identity of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 15 that he's the image of the invisible God, also that he's the firstborn of every creature. In verse 16, he says of Jesus Christ, by him were all things created. And in verse 17, it says, he is before all things, and also by him all things consist. In verse 18, he makes three statements. He is the head of the body, who, Jesus, is the beginning, and he's the firstborn from the dead. Oh, one more. In all things, he might have the preeminence. So four points that he makes in verse 18. And finally, in verse 19, in him should all fullness dwell. Now, for those Gnostic teachers who sought to weaken the authority of Jesus, Paul plainly established that Jesus is God in the flesh. Incidentally, liberal scholars today still question the deity of our Savior. Now, notice the word reconcile in verse 20. The Greek word that Paul uses, and by the way, he's the only one that ever uses this word for reconcile, it's apokatalosso. It's twice here in verses 20 and 21, and again in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16. As I mentioned, only Paul uses this word. The word holds the connotation of patching up a previous rift. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16, it's between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now here in verses 20 and 21, we see that man left God, but the sacrifice of Christ on the cross made it possible for man to be reconciled back to God. Paul used the same word without the apa prefix at the beginning, making it katalasso in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, 1 Corinthians 7, 11, and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. That's a word which has the same meaning. In each context, except 1 Corinthians 7, 11, it's used to describe the reparation in relations between man and God by Jesus Christ through his sacrificial death because the Colossians, and for that matter us, before salvation, we were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. He says that in verse 21. Having already stated the method by which we were reconciled in verse 20, that's through the blood of his cross, Paul restates it in a slightly different word format here in verse 22 when he says, in the body of his flesh through death. Verse 22 continues with the goal of this reconciliation, not only redemption, but a lifestyle in this world that reflects that redemption. If you don't understand this, you'll misunderstand verse 23. So let's frame verse 23 by looking at their lifestyle before salvation back up in verse 20. It says there that they were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. The unregenerate mind fostered, now listen, fostered wicked works. Therefore, the goal of this reconciliation is to, and I quote, to present you wholly unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Now understand this, we are made righteous before God by trusting Jesus Christ as personal Savior. Now Paul calls this imputed righteousness over in Romans chapter 4 verses 24 and 25. However, in this passage, Paul's made it clear with his reference to wicked works that he's talking not about imputed righteousness, but righteous looking lifestyles. In other words, lifestyles that are holy and unblameable and unreprovable. 
Verse 23 then goes on to explain how that lifestyle is maintained, and it's by continuing in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Believers need to stay focused on the main thing. Now let's revisit an issue that we saw up in verse 6 as we look at the remainder of verse 23. It says, The gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Paul didn't use the word world, the Greek cosmos. He didn't use that here in this verse 23 as he did in verse 6 to describe this domain. In the written notes of BibleTrack.org, I give you a little bit of a technical discussion here. But let me just uh, sum it up by saying that uh, as in verse 6, Paul is likely conveying the thoroughness of the gospel penetration throughout the Roman Empire. If Paul were making a prophetic statement that every single person on the face of the globe had heard the gospel, one would think that Paul would have offered some more explanation regarding this feat to his Colossian recipients. It doesn't appear that Paul's revealing a mystery here. I mean, if he were, I believe he'd have said so. In verse 24, Paul says that he rejoices in his sufferings for the Colossians. He expands that to include the body of Christ, which he defines as the church. That's the Greek word ekklesia. The body of Christ is interchangeably referred to in the New Testament as the church. Then Paul in verses 25 through 29 describes his ministry. Verse 25, Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations but now is made manifest to his saints to whom God would make known what is riches of the glory of his mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Here Paul discusses his calling from God, what he's preaching and doing among the Gentiles. The Greek word for mystery there is the in verse 26 is mysterion. As you can see, mystery is a near transliteration of the Greek word, which literally means that which cannot be known by the natural mind. So what is this mystery message Paul so diligently preaching to the Gentiles? Well, it's found in verse 27, and here it is, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That was a foreign concept, a mystery, so to speak. At least it was a mystery to the Old Testament Jews, but has been revealed to Paul and shared with us. In a general sense, the word actually means that which was hidden previously, mysterion. Now, verse 25 says this, "...whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God." Now, there's that word dispensation again. It's the Greek word oikonomia. It means management. It's used by Paul to describe his revelation of the gospel of grace, which is previously a mystery, which now has been extended to all believers. He says that in verse 26 when he says this, Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. He also used the word dispensation in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 2. In light of his plain speaking on the matter, it's difficult to reject the notion that Paul was clearly dispensational in his view of God's economy through the ages. 
In verses 27 to 29, Paul commits himself fully to the ministration of the preaching of this dispensational truth when he says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul's goal is that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. The Greek word for perfect there is teleos, which means mature. That brings us to chapter 2, where we find that there are a lot of logical but wrong philosophies about Jesus Christ. Verse 1, For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and into all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order, and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. And we see the distress that Paul senses in verse 1 regarding the spreading of this false teaching in Colossae as well as other places, including Laodicea. His reference in verse 2 to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, that was defined back in chapter 1, verse 26. In that mystery are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, verse 3. Then comes the treachery in verse 4. He's been laying the groundwork up to this point for dealing with this treachery, and here it is. Those who would beguile you with enticing words. After commending their steadfastness and faith in verse 5, he digs right in. The Judaizers and Gnostics of Paul's day are undoubtedly the target for these remarks, as we will see later in this chapter. Verse 6 is particularly meaningful here when he says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. In other words, now listen closely to what he means. You're saved by faith, and you're likewise kept by faith. In verses 7 through 15, he encourages the folks at Colossae to embrace their life in Christ. Verse 7, Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him which is the head of all principality and power. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ." Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Now, these heretics about whom Paul's uh, talking here, then and now, they would add a level of law-keeping to one's faith, were they allowed to do so. Verse 7 says, in essence, hang on to the principles of your faith, don't allow them to redefine it. I particularly like verse 8. It says, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. 
Now, the Greek word there for spoil is used only once in the New Testament. In other literature, it's used in the context of the spoil taken in battle. In this context, Paul's warning them to protect their minds against becoming the spoil of non-scriptural philosophies and vain, which means, it's the Greek word kenos, means empty, and empty deceptive teachings. The world is saturated with philosophies then and now that attack one's faith in Christ. It's vital that you, as a believer, fully understand your relationship to Christ so that the modern-day philosophers won't be able to make you feel insufficient in your faith for lack of meeting their man-made expectations of you. Verse 9 absolutely sets the record straight that Jesus Christ is fully God in the flesh when it says, "...for in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily." That verse leads me to embrace the scriptural term Godhead to describe the relationship of Jesus to God and the Holy Spirit rather than the oft-used term Trinity. When you use Paul's words to describe it, you're less likely to be misunderstood. Now, verse 10 goes on to say, And you're complete in Him. That's great news. However, there were those who did not see that as the complete package. That's also the problem today. Paul then deals with a couple of the unscriptural addenda added to one's faith back then, the first being circumcision. Notice how Paul expresses it in verse 11 when he says, "...in whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands." No physical ritual of circumcision is necessary, as was established, by the way, at the Jerusalem Council back in Acts chapter 15. Spiritual circumcision consists of trusting Jesus Christ as one's personal Savior. That's all that's necessary. The picture, which, by the way, is only a picture, is represented by water baptism in verse 12 with the final result in verse 13. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. That baptismal picture is beautifully outlined in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Now, verse 14 is very important to understand. It says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. It's clear that Paul is talking about the law of Moses here. What does he mean when he refers to the law of Moses? What exactly is the believer's responsibility regarding the law of Moses? Now, this is an important foundational lesson. Paul declares in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7-11, through 11, that the law of Moses had been done away. Now, those aren't my words. Those are Paul's words. It's important to understand that this was the mission of Jesus Christ as seen in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, when Jesus himself said, "...think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled." Now, if you're still a little fuzzy about what's meant here, then take a look at the article I've written on the Sabbath day, which kind of encapsulates our responsibility with regard to the Mosaic Law. There's a link right here on this page where you can go to the uh, main title page of BibleTrack.org and look in the center there under the topics, and you'll be able to read the article. Now, the precise meaning of verse 15 is disputed among scholars. The foes here are principalities and powers. The Greek words are arche, which is also translated rulers, and exousia, which is also translated authorities. So are these human or supernatural foes? Well, it doesn't matter. Christ spoiled them, 
according to Paul, Christ spoiled them and triumphed over them. However, based upon context before and after this verse, I'm inclined to prefer the notion that Jesus Christ, by his death, burial, and resurrection, triumphed over those who would put artificial requirements on spirituality. Those are the people he's warning against in verses 1 through 14, and continues to do so in verses 16 to 23. Therefore, I'm going with the people in authority here for the foes being discussed in verse 15. Now let's read verses 16 through 23. What about those rituals and traditions? Verse 16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of a new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the bodies of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourished, ministered, and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, wine, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will-worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh." Now, the Jews were way into doing, doing, doing. It was what was defined as an observant Jew, one that kept on doing that which he felt was specified in the law. Understandably, they had a difficult time shaking that habit, and that had characterized their lives, all their lives. To them, this was the way to honor God, just by doing, by observing. They couldn't abide with the concept that Gentiles could honor God in any other fashion. Therefore, these Judaizers would insist that the believing Gentiles comply with their doings. A hybrid religion of Judaism and Christianity was being taught to these Gentiles, which did no justice to Judaism or Christianity. And so Paul warns against this. Now, perhaps this is a good time to point out that a hybrid doctrine of Christian living is still being taught today in many fundamental churches. Carefully selected portions of the Old Testament law well, really the ones they like, those portions are extracted and applied as standards of Christian living. The Judaizers of the New Testament did so because they were in a transitional period between law and grace. They were Jews who believed and were still wrestling with the place of the Mosaic law in their Christian lives. Today, there's really no excuse. Few of us were practicing Orthodox Jews prior to salvation. This chapter particularly points out that legalism counteracts grace. The law of Moses equals Judaism, and Judaism equals the law of Moses. They're one and the same. Paul takes care in separating the two in his writings to the churches. Today our law is from within because we have an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.2 says it like this, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. In other words, I literally have God's law written on my heart. That's the law that I am to obey, not the Old Testament law of Moses. That's really a simple concept, but quite difficult for many believers to grasp. Now, make no mistake about it. That's exactly what Paul is saying in verse 16 when he says this, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day 
or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. This verse is a direct reference to the unscriptural mandate that believers be required to keep the Old Testament law. Now, it's quite ironic. With all the clarity contained in these verses, verses 16 to 23, many fundamental preachers today still seem confused about law-keeping. They obviously don't keep the mandates of the law of Moses, including the Sabbath specifications, but they continue to promote it as an addendum to faith in Christ. As a matter of fact, look at the outcome of the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. You'll notice that these Jewish Christian leaders didn't set forth a requirement that the newly saved Gentiles be subjected to the law of Moses. Yet, of the top ten commandments, virtually none of those who preach the importance of keeping the Mosaic law actually take any measures whatsoever to keep number four, Sabbath-keeping. Under Moses, it was a death sentence to violate that one. Now, if you want to know more about that, then look at the article that I've written on the Sabbath day. There's a link here, or as I mentioned earlier, you can go to the topic section of BibleTrack.org and read the article entitled The Sabbath Day. Now, here's the fear that many have. They're afraid that without the hammer of the Old Testament Mosaic Law, that people will feel that they can get away with sin. Every mandate the believer needs concerning life in Christ by the way, is found in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, let's take a look at chapter 3 and see that Paul's careful to point out the attributes of godly Christian living. So what about those practices of verse 16? What are they good for? Paul says the same thing here in verse 17 that he says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. They served as shadows leading up to their fulfillment in Christ. We're not given any details about the heresy being practiced in verse 18. It would appear that Paul is critical of those who have developed a doctrine that believers are not worthy to appeal directly to God and must, therefore, worship angels instead. That heresy came from his fleshly mind, he says. To practice such a doctrine cuts one off from the head, verse 19, the head of the body of Christ, thus missing out on the increase of God. Paul then asks this question in verse 20. He says, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? He lists a few of those ordinances in verse 21 and categorizes them in verse 22 as after the commandments and doctrines of men. It would appear that here we see this hybrid doctrine of the Gnostics with a little bit of law of Moses mixed in. He sums up this ritualistic worship in verse 23 when he says, "...which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will and worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh." Now notice the show of wisdom. Well, it's not real wisdom, it's the show of wisdom. The will worship that we find in this verse comes from a single compound Greek word which means religion thought up by oneself. This addresses the practice of self-deprivation in the course of practicing a man-made religion. But they look very, very pious doing so. Then in Colossians chapter 3, we have the mortify, put off, and put on. Love these verses. Verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For your dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. 
Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man which was renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which ye also are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord." And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Now, notice how Paul frames this discussion in verse 1. He says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Now, notice the right hand reference there. Uh, probably taken from Psalm 110, where we have Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. That's a natural transition, by the way, from the erroneous practices that we saw in verses 16 to 23. Immediately, we're reminded of Paul's words in Philippians 4, 8, where he says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of a good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. It really couldn't be any clearer. The believer should be controlled by the Holy Spirit of God, as we see in verses 1-4. through 4. In doing so, our thinking will be managed according to what we just read in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Now, let's briefly look at Paul's emphases in verses 1-4. through 4. Believers are pictured in verse 1 as having been resurrected in Christ, which is a picture of our relationship with Christ typified by water baptism, and that's referenced in chapter 2, verse 12, which we looked at a few moments ago. And it's fully developed, by the way, in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Now, verse 2 emphasizes that believers should set their affections toward eternal rewards. Then, as also pictured in water baptism, believers are shown to be dead to the world and now in Christ's care in verse 3 and looking for the rapture in verse 4. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 and 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 58 if you'd like more details on the rapture. Then we find lists in verses 5 through 14. Everybody loves a list. Paul gives us three lists as guides for mature conduct in this passage. He says, first of all, in this first list, to mortify, in other words, put to death, therefore your members which are upon the earth. And then these actions, by the way, that he mentions in this first list, the ones to mortify, they're mostly of a sexual nature. Now, by the way, I've listed the Greek words that accompany these English words. If you'd like to see them in the written notes of BibleTrack.org, but let me just uh, summarize here to say that fornication, uh, moral uncleanness, inordinate affection, 
which is particularly of a sexual nature, evil concupiscence, which, uh, which means evil lust, and covetousness, which, by the way, he says is idolatry. Now, by the way, this um, pleonexia typically equates with greediness, but here it's translated covetousness. However, only used ten times in the New Testament, context seems to indicate that some dishonesty or problems with integrity in the process of exercising that greed is seen here. Since Paul equates it with idolatry and God destroyed Israel and Judah for idolatry, believers' interests are best served by steering away from any covetous activities in their lives. In verse 6, we're told, "...for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience." We see that Paul deals with this concept exhaustively in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. Even among lost people, God's demonstrated that he has no tolerance for depraved conduct. As a matter of fact, in Leviticus chapter 18, verses 19 through 30, we're told that the nations which had previously occupied Canaan were spewed out of the land because of these wicked practices, primarily with regard to sexual perversion. He refers to their unregenerate lifestyle in this context in verse 7, which is a reference to their before-salvation practices. Now, we first started with mortify, put to death. Then he says, put off these in verses 8 and 9. Now, these are both words and also outward expressions. It would appear that Paul means to differentiate these put-off actions from the put-to-death actions of verse 5. And these are anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication, and lying. Now, I've given you uh, the Greek word and the definition for each of those in the written notes, but suffice to say that those are the put-off issues. And then we have the put-on characteristics, the attributes, in verses 12 through 14. These positive responses come as a result of the Holy Spirit leadership. In one's relationship with others, these qualities are those that manifest themselves in believers as they are led by the Holy Spirit. These are similar to the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. First of these put-on attributes are the bowels of mercy. Now, by the way, this word means compassion. Used uh, in this context all through the New Testament, it means to convey an intense compassion toward others. Kindness, humbleness of mind, humility, by the way, that characterizes a person. Meekness, which, by the way, goes along with gentleness. Long-suffering, suffering long, uh, having a long fuse. Forbearing one another. Uh, by the way, that's, uh, that's what happens, bearing one another. When somebody might get on your nerves, you forbear them, you defer to them. Forgiving one another, charizomize used here, means to freely give, and most often it's in the context of forgiveness. If you'd like to see more on the teaching of forgiveness, look at chapter 17 of the book of Luke in the first four verses. And then finally, charity, agape, means sacrificial love. Paul then uh, adds in verse 15 that believers should let the peace of God rule in your hearts. I say that it's a pretty comprehensive list, wouldn't you? As a matter of fact, in essence, it exceeds the mandates of the Old Testament Mosaic Law. So why should we be afraid that we're letting people get away with things because we don't require them to keep the Ten Commandments? Because it's all specified right here. And here's the primary reason that we should gather as believers. It's found in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. There it says, "...let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom." 
teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Look, I need your fellowship, and you need my fellowship. You can't get that from television or radio. Then we have in Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 18, down through chapter 4, verse 1, uh, admonitions regarding husbands, wives, children, fathers, and slaves. Verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men." knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. Now these admonitions are similar to those found in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, down through chapter 6, verse 9. Believers should be ever conscious of how they relate to others, and that's a matter of personal testimony. So these relationships are specified in this passage as follows. Wives to husbands in verse 18, which by the way the Greek word hupatasos used there means an, a voluntary subordination when it says submit to your husbands. And then husbands to wives, there's the admonition to agapao, to love them. When Paul commends men to love their wives in verse 19, he's commanding them to make sacrifices for their wives. When folks make sacrifices for one another, a natural affection, that's the Greek word philia, which is translated love as well, that's the result, a natural love, a natural affection. So sacrifice results in natural affection. The ultimate amount of sacrifice is illustrated by Christ's willingness to give his own life for the salvation of believers. Incidentally, that concept rebuilds broken marriages as well. If a troubled couple will simply return to the practice of sacrificing, the practice that characterized the early days of their marriage or courtship, then that natural affection for one another will be rekindled. Then we have the children-to-parents relationship. Obey in all things. That's pretty simple. That's also seen in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And there it's associated with Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, which is the commandment, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. In other words, Paul here says, based upon the commandment in the Old Testament, that children who obey their parents live longer. And then... We have the relationship of fathers to children in verse 21, where it says, Don't provoke the children to anger. Now, while Paul gives the same admonition in chapter 6 of Ephesians, verse 4, here he cites the reason. He says, Lest they be discouraged. In this passage, he encourages parents to exercise a measured response to children when they disobey. And then in verses 22 to 25, we have uh, the relationship of slaves to their masters. In other words, heartily obey them. God will punish unjust masters. And then masters to slaves in chapter 4, verse 1. Here he says, just treat them justly and equally. 
Now, slavery during the first century was a legal reality, and it had been for centuries in the Roman Empire and the empires that preceded it. These slaves were under Roman rule, and they weren't entire races, but rather certain people from within each race who were in bondage as slaves. So how might you become a slave during that era? Well, derived from extra-biblical historical documents, here are a few ways. If you were born to a slave, you were born a slave and remained such unless your master gave you freedom. Promiscuity was rampant during that era as well. It was common that unwanted babies would be left out on the side of the road to suffer death by exposure, especially girls. Slave traders would then harvest these unwanted babies and hire someone to raise them until they could be sold as slaves. Even though most of these babies were unwanted females, they would be raised to become productive in supplying male and female slaves to their owners. It's also true that a debtor could lose his freedom and be forced into slavery as a result. Additionally, sometimes slaves were formerly prisoners of war. The first two scenarios that I mentioned here were probably the primary sources for the greatest number of the slaves that we find in Roman society during that era. Now, Paul deals with the proper relationship between slaves and their owners. He had no power to change laws governing slavery, so he simply dealt in this chapter with how slaves should properly respond to their masters and how masters should relate to their slaves. Some have questioned why Paul didn't just condemn slavery altogether in this passage. Well, keep in mind two issues at hand. First, when raised as a slave from birth, Roman society would have been economically intolerant of one who had acquired his freedom in most circumstances. This was the lifestyle to which they were accustomed. The security of a benevolent slave owner was preferred by many over freedom. Second of all, Paul's ministry was not one of government reform. His was a ministry of reconciliation to God. Here was a man writing to people from prison enduring his own version of false imprisonment. So understand that these verses represent Paul's instructions to believers who were slaves and to their slave owners. Paul also deals with the subject of the proper treatment of slaves over in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. That brings us to chapter 4, beginning with verse 2. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving with all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Paul encourages us to continually be in communication with God in prayer and thanksgiving to God. In verse 2, the Greek word, uh, it's the verb used for continue in that verse, is the same word used in Acts chapter 6, verse 4, with regard to the apostles when they tell the folks in Jerusalem. And they say, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Paul uses the same word to describe a believer's proper attitude toward prayer in Romans chapter 12, verse 12, when he says this, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. Paul couldn't say it any more simply than he does in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, where he says there, pray without ceasing. Now, he then lists three action items for these believers. In verses 3 and 4, we find the first one. He says, pray that Paul will have opportunities to share the mystery of Christ to others. Paul described that mystery in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. 
And then in verse 5, he says, Be conscious of testimony in interaction with the lost. Them that are without, he refers to them as. Where he says, redeeming the time. Where there he means using those opportunities wisely. And then in verse 6, thirdly, he says, Use gracious speech. Speech he describes as that seasoned with salt. Salt adds flavor to food. It seems likely he's encouraging believers to witness to the lost with gracious or kind speech that's palatable to the recipient rather than condescending and brash. Interestingly, this is the only New Testament reference to salt with the exception of Jesus' usage in Matthew 5.13, Mark 9.49 and 50 and Luke 14.34. In all three usages, Jesus is talking about the taste aspect of salt, not the preservative value of salt. So to put it simply, verses 5 and 6 emphasize the importance of continually being conscious of how we are viewed by non-believers. And then we have Paul's closing words in verses 7 through 18 of chapter 4. Verse 7, All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brethren and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They shall make known unto you all things which are done here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you, and Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom ye receive commandments. If he come unto you, receive him. And Jesus, which is called Justice, who are of the circumcision, these only are my fellow workers into the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you, and them that are in Laodicea, and them in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea, and Nymphus, and the church which is in his house. And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. The salutation by the hand of me, Paul, remember my bonds. Grace be with you. Amen. Now these are the final words of uh, greeting to believers that Paul usually includes at the end of his letters. The Tychicus of uh, verse 7 was one of the disciples that accompanied Paul on a portion of his third missionary journey. He appears in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. The Marcus of verse 10 is likely the John Mark of Acts chapter 12, listed here as a cousin to Barnabas and Paul's one-time fellow traveler in the ministry, who's first seen in Acts chapter 4. We see in verse 14 that Luke's with Paul at the time of this writing. Some think that the Laodicean letter of verse 16 is the Ephesian epistle. We're left with the impression that those mentioned through verse 11 are of the circumcision, as in Jews, while those mentioned from verse 12 on are Gentiles. That suggests that Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, that he was a Gentile. Demas is mentioned here as present with Paul, but seems to have abandoned Paul when he's mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. We see in verse 18 that Paul used a transcriber for this letter with the exception of this salutation. 
This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker.